0: From the, the art world, in the opening paragraph of the article, a valuable avant-garde painting has been vandalized by a bored security guard who drew eyes on faceless figures in the artwork on his first day working in a Russian gallery. Anna, Anna Popovskaya's three figures was painted between 1932 and nineteen. 19- had been insured for 75 million rubles, and that's roughly the equivalent of 1.4 million dollars. It was on display as part of an abstract art exhibition at the Bortz-Yeltsin Presidential Center in Connberg when the guard drew eyes on it using a ballpoint pen. He was, the damage that he did was discovered by a couple of guests there at the, the gallery. Uh, not surprisingly, he was quickly fired. Fortunately, for those who uh, have concern for this, this piece of, of, of work, the damage was not too severe because as he was holding that ballpoint pin, he didn't push too hard, and so the brush strokes were not really done damage to, and it looks like this thing can be repaired. How much, you ask, will the repair bill be? Well, about $4,600. Now, that's a lot of money.
1: Not really though, you know, relatively speaking, when you
0: consider the overall value, the price of the piece, but that's still quite a bit of, of money. I want to start off with this question. Now having set it up with that, I want to start with this question. What do we do with our guilt? What do you and I, what do we as human beings, do with our our guilt? Now, now, what I mean by that is is not the vandalism <laughs> done to us by others. I'm speaking of deep self-harm to our souls that we do when we fail to love God and one another and therein inevitably sin against God and one another. What do we do with our guilt? Our text speaks to this. Text here this morning speaks to this uh, and powerfully so. Uh, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14. If you're here for the first time this morning in this series, we're just kind of hitting high points in the book of Leviticus. This uh, often ignored, um, just kind of shoved to the side book uh, there in the Old Testament. I it's Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, and uh, as we continue on through the Pentateuch. But Leviticus chapter 5, starting in verse 14, moving on to chapter 6, verse 7, is telling us something about one of these offerings. We've been looking at a few of these already. An offering is often referred to as the guilt offering, but probably more um, accurately would be referred to as a, a uh, reparation offering. And we'll talk about the, the rationale for perhaps a different name as we go. So, put it. Um, The new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. Let us hear now God's word. Leviticus chapter 5 starting in verse 14.
1: The Lord spoke to Moses
0: saying if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without Valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments are not to be done, though he did not know it, Then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor... In a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has... sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become Guilty. Well, that's right. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Leviticus. The people in Moses' name were thankful for it. They were thankful for the, the provision of these ceremonies and rites, the means by which you were teaching, training their hearts. When you compare the list, oftentimes a name keeps showing up, and the name is the Rosenbergs. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, or remember much of the Cold War, that, that name may be uh, familiar to you. i read a quick excerpt from one of those articles, one of those lists. The Rosenbergs were a married couple with communist sympathies who sold atomic secrets to the Soviets during the height of the Cold War. Julius Rosenberg helped exchange covert information and also recruited other spies for the Soviet Union. He, alongside his wife Ethel, whose level of involvement, if any at all, is still contentious, was arrested in 1950. After a controversial trial, both were executed for conspiring to sell atomic secrets to Russia on June 19, 1953. Now, why do I mention the Rosenberg story? What in the world does that have to do with any of this? Because treachery is at the very heart of this offering. Treachery is at the very heart of the reparation offering. Now last week, if you were here, you may remember we were talking about what is referred to as the sin offering, the purification offering. And that was getting at the reality that with sin comes defilement of which we need to, or from which we need to be cleansed. Here this morning, we're looking at something different and it shows us that sin can also have a sense of Uh, well, can connote a sense of betrayal. Betrayal of covenant loyalty. This uh, reparation offering, again, sometimes referred to as the guilt offering, comes in, in times in response to, in the context of a betrayal of covenant loyalty, a transgression, an act of treachery. Or as twice you see here in this text, a breach of faith. A breach of faith. The Leviticus question. Remember the Leviticus question? Those of you who have been in this series for a few weeks, when you you consider the flow of events, the flow of history, moving from the book of Exodus into the book of of Leviticus, the, the great looming question that this book is grappling with is how can a holy God live with such unholy people, in particular, how can such a holy God live amidst an unholy people that commit such breaches of faith, that commit such treachery, that transgress in such ways as as we do, as we do. How can we live in relationship with such a God? By the way, I mean, this, this term that's used here for breach of faith is the exact same sort of terminology that you read elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe marital infidelity. So you could think of this as a, as a spiritual adultery. How can a holy God live in relationship with A people such as us who are prone to wander, prone to betray him. How is that possible? Therein comes the reparation offering. And it is good news. The things that we learn here are profoundly good news. He has addressed, the Lord in his grace has addressed our breaches of faith. He has addressed our breaches of faith, and we see that here with this reparation offering. We see it pictured here dramatically with this reparation offering. Now, we're gonna break this down just in in two parts. If you you printed out the outline or if you picked picked it up on your way in, it's just two simple parts, and it's just looking at this. One, when was this offering needed? Just looking at the text, when was it needed? And then secondly, following up from that, what then was required, okay? So when was it needed? and what was required. All right, let's take a look. When was it needed? For starters, it's worth noting, uh, again, thinking back to what we were looking at last week, this is, the, these are dealing with, with offenses more serious than what we were looking at last week, and you can see that in the offering that's being given is a ram, a more costly offering, is being lifted up. So we know right then the transgression, the treachery, the betrayal is, is, is worse it's, it's worse. It's all the more painful uh, for the Lord. Now, there are three cases of offenses, transgressions, betrayals, treachery here. Three different cases. The first one being, you can see this in chapter 5. I'm not going to read it again. I'm just going to, you know, you can, if you have a Bible, you can see it as your, your eyes are moving down the page. Chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. This is a profaning of holy items or the holy things. Uh, the idea being that dishonor. It has been done to things that belong to the Lord. Likely in this context, as you read that and read elsewhere, uh, references to this offering and to other case studies, likely this is referring to situations where someone has unintentionally eaten food that was, had been devoted and committed to the priest and his family. That belongs to God, you know, given that it belongs to the priest's. Okay, it has been committed. It is given over to him. So it's a profaning of a holy thing. Uh, the second case is picking right up from there, chapter five, verses seventeen through nineteen, and this is a situation uh, an, an unknown sin. the The person has a sense that they have done wrong, in just the way we just described. They're not sure, but they're pretty sure they have in some way. And they want to make amends. They want to make restitution. Their conscience is plagued, and they know that something is gone amiss here on their end. The third case is a misuse of the Lord's name. And you see that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, in the references to a false oath being given to defend oneself in the midst of defrauding other people. So I'm saying, no, I didn't and I know I did, and I'm going to invoke the Lord's name in an oath, and that is to profane His holy name. Okay? That's what you see in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And you say, okay, can you help me here? Let me try. The common theme, the common theme between those three cases is this, disrespect for holy things. A disrespect for holy things, a breach of, of faith is committed when you disdainfully treat the property of another. So you have these holy, sacred things of the Lord being treated as though they are common in every day, heavy, weighty things being treated in a light, airy way. And you have to go a little further and think in terms of the connection here, just connecting the dots. That To disrespect a holy thing is, you can't escape this, is to disrespect a holy God. To disrespect the holy thing, whether or not you're, you, whether you're thinking in terms of something in the tabernacle or his very name, to disrespect the holy thing is ultimately to show disrespect, to dishonor the holy God. These breaches of faith are what called for the reparation offering. We could get something of this in our own personal experience. You know, what it means to disrespect the possessions of a person is ultimately to disrespect the person, right? You know what that feels like when it's been done to you. You know what that feels like when something that belongs to you has been abused, or treated in some trivial fashion and you feel offense you feel violated in some way personally because it's an extension of you the thing and that's what we see here in the offense that the lord rightly takes in this case with things the things that belong to him what does belong to him today Maybe that's a reasonable question. We should stop here just for a moment and ask that of ourselves. What belongs to him today? Well, we could start with, if you want to keep your thumb in there in Leviticus, turn with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 1. What things are his today? Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. Well, that's kind of comprehensive now, isn't it? What belongs to him? What is his? What isn't? What isn't? But perhaps we could get a little bit more pointed, a little bit more specific, and go back to some of what we were talking about last week in one of the applications. What is his? Remember what we saw last week in terms of the temple? What is, where does he dwell? What is his temple? What is his tabernacle dwelling? The, where does his spirit live today specifically, most especially? And we looked at the fact that it, it's us, believers, his disciples. We are the temple dwelling of the living God today. Let's go now, you've, uh, you've already started going to the right, let's go a, little, a few more uh, pages to 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's the very text we looked at last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, it's after the Gospels and after Acts and after Romans. Uh, we get to the Corinthian letters, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 19 to 20. Uh, Paul says this quite explicitly, that we are a temple. Do you not know that your body, and he's the the you here is singular, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body, and you may remember last week we talked about the fact that that's in the context when he is saying. You are the temple of God. Glorify God with your body. And that's in the context of speaking of the need to flee from sexual immorality. Why? Because we are the temple of the living God. Our bodies are the temple of his Holy Spirit. And therefore, with that in mind, he says earlier in that chapter, flee from sexual immorality. But he says something similar. And again, we looked at this last week. These points are just so important. It's worth reiterating. Uh, if you go back earlier in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, he uses similar, similar language, but making a completely different point. S- uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And this here, the, the you is plural. You are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Here he is not speaking of the need to reckon with the reality that we are God's temple, his, uh, the, we are his um, uh, tabernacle dwelling, and pressing home on the, the reality the the point, the need to avoid sexual immorality. Here he is speaking of the need to, str- to flee from relational disunity because we together, we together are the temple. Uh, his tabernacle dwelling. Or if I could just sum it up this way, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. In, in every way. When it comes to the Bible's teaching on sex, the reason that it says what it does is because the Bible knows, God knows, the power and purpose of of that intimacy, and so it speaks strongly here, in ways far beyond the way our world can appreciate it. Hence, it speaks as strongly as it does, holding it up with a high, high view. The reason that the Bible speaks the way that it does of the need for uh, to hold up relationships in the way that it does, is because of God's high view of His church. And us as human beings, made in His image. And so it speaks strongly there as well. Again, if I could just just sum it up. We are His. We are His. And that is news that is meant to, that reality is news that we're meant to carry with us, to encourage us to avoid these things, and at the same time to assure us when we inevitably fail, which we do, which we do. Meant to encourage us, meant to assure us both. The Lord, in His grace, has addressed these breaches of faith. And we see that pictured in this reparation offering. All right, let's go on to the second point. We've looked at uh, when it was needed. Let's consider now what was required in the offering itself. At the, at the risk of sounding a little snarky, what was required in the reparation offering? Reparation. Benediction, we're done. No. So what does that mean? What would would that mean? A reparation is a mitigated penalty to make amends for a wrong that has been done by making payment to the one who has been wronged. Let me read that again. A A reparation is a mitigated penalty to make amends for a wrong done By making payment to the one who has been wronged. And the rationale is obvious. That justice would be done. That compensation, just compensation would be made. Uh, Our Laird Harris in his wonderful commentary he wrote years ago on Leviticus. And I think this is actually in your quotes and notes. Put it this way. In any kind of sin involving damage, full restoration must be made. Forgiveness does not allow us just to forget the damage done, but requires us in repentance and with confession to make right, as far as possible, the wrong done. That forgiveness is free does not mean that it is free of obligation. And that is the idea behind, you may remember from years ago, in South Africa, the, uh, uh, the oh dear, what was it called, the uh, Reconciliation Commission, it was, it was something, anyway, it was, it was, the, the, it was what was beh- stood behind the efforts towards that, it's what is standing behind even today, something very similar uh, there in South Africa, in the wake of apartheid, was the history I was trying to allude to there. Um, and it's very much what's going on right now today up in Canada as they are trying to address historic grievous wrongs done to indigenous peoples. This idea of reparation and restitution, it's the principle in what takes place in court-supervised scenarios where you have a victim and their family sitting with the offender, the one who's wronged them so grievously, that pain would be heard and healing might take place. It's the same principle in in all those things, this work of reparation. It's very biblical. You see it right here in Leviticus, Leviticus 4 and 6. It has to take place between all the parties. All the parties involved must be involved. The reparation, and you see that with the reparation offering. Vertically, vertically, a ram was given to the priest. The ram is being offered to God. Why? Offense, this, this breach of trust, this breach of faith has been t- has taken place between the believer and his God. The Israelite and the Lord. And so the ram was given, and you read elsewhere further in the book of Leviticus, and you know then that the priest then takes that ram, and it is killed, and the blood is splattered upon the sides of the altar. They're in the court of the tabernacle. But it's not just that vertical sense. There's a horizontal plane here as, as well. Your neighbor, in this case, your neighbor has been offended, and that cannot just be overlooked. In in, in the case of the priest, in the food that was taken from them wrongly, even if unintentionally, and then the the cases of defrauding in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In in both cases, wrong has been done, and it simply will not do to to pass that by. Restitution had to take place, plus 20% of the value of what was lost. Did you notice that? Restitution of what was lost plus 20%, one-fifth of of what was uh, taken from them. And and it's worth noting that ultimately, ultimately this offense was against the Lord, even while you have that horizontal element therein. Uh, If you look at uh, chapter 6, verse 2, you see it earlier as well, but it's all the plainer here, chapter 6, verse 2. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor, and then it goes on from there. That's where it began. That's where it began. So you have this work of reparation that needs to take place p- towards all the parties that are involved, and one more thing, in proper order. In proper order. And there is an order that is, that is put forth here, and you see it twice. It, the, the, your neighbor and their, their injury and what has been the harm done to them is not simply to be overlooked and passed by, Uh, It simply will not do to piously say, Oh, well, you know, I, I did sin ultimately against God, so... No. No, there was restitution, there was reparation that was needed to be made for them, towards them, and note first, before the ram is given to the priest, that restitution, that reparation was to be made for your neighbor. There's a priority here. So we see something of when this this offering was needed and what was required. What's the significance of this for today? It's pretty extraordinary. We need to drill here for just a minute. Dave was reading from Matthew 5. Can we go back there for just a moment? Matthew 5 verses 23 to 24. Uh, Note something that Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. uh, This is After the Beatitudes and what he speaks about the salt and the light and how he has come to fulfill the law, he begins to speak on anger and what it means to fulfill the law, to walk in obedience to the Lord in in terms of anger, and that's what you have there in chapter 5, 21, 22. And then you get to this, verses 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The Lord doesn't want your gift. You get that? He doesn't want your gift until you've done business with your neighbor. It's worthless, it's empty, maybe worse. Maybe worse in his sight. The the context here, of course, is temple worship. The context for us, this in a church sanctuary, or maybe in your community group, or a Bible study, or whatever it may be. And, and there are steps involved, and a priority in his mind, maybe not ours, but in his. And, and note to clarify her, it's even more intriguing to note the way Jesus puts this, and the scenario that he puts in front of us. He's putting a, a scenario in front of us, it's not where I'm angry with you, and I know that, but I know you're angry with me and I'm going to go towards you. And And he doesn't say justifiably. He just says, I know you're upset with me, and so I go to you. I go to you. Why? Because I've already read something here about how wrong it is for a disciple of Jesus to have their heart overtaken in anger and the crippling effect that that can have upon a human heart. So if I love you, do I want that to happen to you? If I love you, do I want that to happen to you? Hopefully not, and so then I'll go. So then I'll go. Derek Tidball, in his commentary on Leviticus, has a pretty striking way of phrasing this, and this also, I believe, is in your quotes and notes. It's one of the longer, I think it's the longer quote there. i want to read it to you. It's worth noting in our context here this morning, as we, as we think about this, and uh, what it would mean to walk out the reparation offering and some of the priorities and principles that we see here. This is what Tidball wrote. One wonders how often the presence of God seems absent from our worship services, not because the minister is ill-prepared or the liturgy defective or the song is ill-chosen, but because some of those in attendance are deluding themselves by thinking that by their much singing and praying, they can conjure up the presence of God when what is really needed is for them to go and pay their bills, apologize to their friends, repair bridges with their neighbors, meet their obligations to their families, and make practical amends for any cheating in which they have been engaged. Just as significant is the cheating they have done on God by their meager offerings or the paucity of time they have set aside for Him in daily devotion or in public worship. If reparation. Were made in these areas? Might we not see God open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that we will not have room enough for it? And there he's quoting from one of the prophets. Friends, the breaches of faith are still possible and often still present, even with us. And the Lord in his grace. Has addressed that, he has spoken into that, and we see that with this reparation offering. Some of you may know that a uh, a glorious reunion took place here recently, uh, that of the cast from the Harry Potter films. And uh, if you don't know, if you grew up, if you lived on a cave somewhere on Saturn. Uh, Harry Potter is a series, the movies are based on a series of books. And the last one, the seventh one, was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Uh, towards the end of the story, there's this extraordinary line uh, there. And I want to read to you, well, it's a couple of lines, but I'll read this to you. Finally, the truth. Lying with his face pressed into the dusty carpet of the office where he had once thought he was learning the secrets of victory. Harry understood at last that he was not supposed to survive. And it's at that point that uh, Harry is seeing his friends suffering and dying in this fight against Lord Voldemort and he gives himself up. He, uh, he leaves his dearest friends behind and commits himself to making one last long walk into that horrible forest, going to his death, experiencing all the jeering and mocking of his enemies. He does not draw his wand. He does not put up a fight. He simply gives himself up for his friends, much as his mother had done for him years before. It's a costly love. I'll read to you an excerpt from Jerem Barr's Echoes of Eden as he's reflecting on all of this. It's worth hearing what he says. At its heart, Rowling, that's the author of the the books, Rowling's last Potter book is a reflection on the two biblical quotations included in the story. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The question at the heart of the book is this, will Harry keep going with the task that Dumbledore has given him, the task of finding and destroying the Horcruxes created by Lord Voldemort, Horcruxes that contain pieces of his fractured and wicked soul. The central issue is where will Harry's treasure lie? For where his treasure is, there will be the devotion of his heart. Will his treasure be the longing for power? Or will his treasure be the commitment to fight against evil, whatever the cost to himself? Harry wins his battles not by wisdom and not by strength, but by things thought foolish and powerless by the world. Above all, he wins his battles by self-sacrificing love. Precisely because he offers himself up to death and to defeat, just as does Christ, he conquers death, spoiler, for it cannot hold him. It should be evident to anyone reading the above summary. This is the last thing that Bars writes. How many remarkable parallels to the gospel story there are in this final book of the Harry Potter series. I found myself weeping with joy many, many times as I read and reread this wonderful reflection on the work of Christ. Point being, that story points to the cost of love, a love that is an echo of Jesus' for us, that we see pictured, I'll explain here in a minute, in the reparation offering. The cost, love is costly. And the greater the love, the truer the love, the costlier it will be. What is the reparation offering ultimately about? For the Israelites, what was it picturing ultimately for us as we look back? What is it pointing towards? Maybe we should rephrase all those questions going from what to who. Who was the reparation offering ultimately about? The prophet Isaiah tells us, just in case we miss the point, the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, where he writes, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, which is right out of Leviticus 5 and 6, a reference to the repar- reparation offering. It's the exact same wording. When his soul makes a reparation offering, he shall see his offspring. The will of, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Love is costly. Love is costly and the greater the love, the truer the love the more costly it will be. The reparation offering is about a God who provides a way for sinners like you and I to be rid of their guilt. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. It is not cheap It's free to us, completely, utterly free to us and horrifically, highly costly to him. And it's out of the soil, rooted in the soil of such costly love that we are then free and enabled to make our confessions and make the reparations and take the steps of restitution forever secure in that love. The Lord in his grace, friends, this is good news. has addressed our breaches of faith. And they are real, but He has addressed them. We see it with the offering. And oh, that we would know who that's about. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are the ram. You are the ram. Yours is the blood upon the altar. Ours is the betrayal. Ours is the trespass. Ours is the breach of faith. And reparation is needed. And you have made it. You have made it. Oh, that we would know it. Oh, that we would be secure in that. That we would then pursue with one another, whatever shape that means, Whatever a course that would take, restitution, reparation, making things right, confessing one to another. Humbled as we see ourselves before you and so gladdened, so grateful, so relieved by what you have done for us. You have loved us so. Would you help us to love each other well? pray in your name. Amen.